So we don't get a lot of sermons from the book of Numbers. So it's probably worth it to remind ourselves of what the context is here. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, and more importantly, in narrative terms, the Bible is, sorry, it's important to note that it comes after the Exodus. Because Numbers is where we find much of the story of the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. This is after they've escaped Egypt, and it's also after they've received God's law at Mount Sinai. They, they, they then go up to the promised land. This is in the early part of the book of Numbers. They go to the promised land, but they refuse to enter it because they don't think that they can win the battles that they're presented with. And God curses Israel to wander the desert for 40 years until all of that generation has died off. The book of Numbers contains two censuses. I had to look it up. It is censuses, not sensi. It contains two censuses from which the, the name of the book comes. The first one is in chapter 1. It's before the first attempt to take the promised land. And the second census comes in chapter 26, after that generation has died off. In this passage, in chapter 27, Moses has just finished counting Israel, and they are deciding which tribes and clans will receive what lands as they go in to take possession of Canaan. So let's read together Numbers 27, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through to verse 11. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. If anyone needs some baby boy names. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. If anyone needs girl names, this passage is great for that. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters saying, are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. There are two elements to this story that are completely foreign to me. And I would assume that they're foreign to you and the rest of our culture as well. The first is the emphasis on land. Show of hands, who was born in Winnipeg? I was born here. Who was born in Winnipeg? Yeah, some. Okay, great. Now, who lives in the same area that you grew up? 
define that however you want. A couple, few, that's pretty good. That's pretty unusual, though. Our culture very much has the mindset that you move away when you grow up, either to go to school or to get a job, or in this day and age, maybe you moved away from where you grew up so that you could be with your spouse, who you met online. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. There are lots of reasons why our culture doesn't feel so great a connection to where we live. Israel, however, was not like that. For one thing, where we live, Winnipeg in Canada, there's lots of room. Manitoba's population density is 2.2 people per square kilometer. Modern-day Israel, modern-day Israel, has more like 400 people per square kilometer. Land was and is a much more valuable commodity in this more densely populated part of the world. Even today, look at that part of the world and count how many neighbors there are on Israel's border. Canada has one neighbor. We've got room. When Winnipeg gets too crowded, we just pick a field and build a new development. Not so when you're surrounded by other nations. In fact, this featured heavily in the Law of Moses. There were laws around land transfer. In fact, there was one law called the Year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, every debt was wiped out. Every slave had to be freed. And get this, every piece of land was to revert to the original owners. You can read about this in Leviticus 25 if you're interested. The tribes and the clans then had a deep connection to the land because it stayed in the family. And even if they sold it, it kept coming back to the family. The inheritance was a big deal. So Moses and the elders are portioning out the land, which is good. They should do that. And they're portioning it out based on the number of men, which like our culture doesn't like that idea and for what I would say are pretty good reasons. But we need to recognize that for them, this made sense. After all, the women would be taken care of by their husbands' inheritances. So there is something simpler about the system that they were working with, especially when the land is going to be reverting, like we just talked about. But now we come to the problem raised by this passage. What about a family wherein they don't have any male children? Well, as we said, the daughters are still going to be cared for by their husbands, and the husbands will have inheritance in the land, so what's the problem? But this is the second element that I find foreign, the concern about family lineage. We live in a day where phrases like carrying on the family line or continuing the family name are not only rare, they feel out of place when they're uttered. It's not that we don't hear them, it's that they're very unusual. We live in a culture deeply rooted in the moment. Or perhaps it would be better to say that we live in a culture cut off from our roots of the past. This culture, the one of ancient Israel, was rooted in the past, in that history. So much, if not most, of their identity came from things like their lineage and things that God had done and that had happened with them and their ancestors in the past. And as we saw, that family legacy was tied deeply to the inheritance of the land. So when the daughters of Zelophehad come to Moses, these two ideas are tied together. 
Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he has no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. God, interestingly, not only hears but affirms their plea. He instructs Moses to change the law, to make special provision for situations like this. This isn't a one-off. He's saying this is how you're supposed to deal with this going forward. The situation is further explored in Numbers 36, if you're interested, when another clause needs to be added because life happened to the otherwise neat and orderly law. But there are two more things that I think the story of Zelophehad's daughters teaches us. First, this story demonstrates God's care for the neglected. And this story is super important when we think about things like the development of the rights of women. Right? This is women being allowed to inherit property, which wasn't a thing. So this is important in that aspect. But one of the stunning things about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is his care for the neglected. Usually, in most ancient religions, the gods concern themselves only with the most important people. Kings, high priests, leaders, those who have the means to make sacrifices and do the bidding of the gods. Even today, one of the objections that we'll hear to Christianity and other religions is how could a God who made everything care about what I do in my day-to-day? But God's law, on the other hand, is chock full of commands about caring for the poor and the orphan, the oppressed, and the stranger. What's that? You'd like to hear some examples? All right, I came prepared. Leviticus 23 contains a command to not reap to the very edges of your field, to leave some of the produce of the land behind so that the poor or those traveling through can pick some food to eat. There's a virtually identical command in Leviticus 19 regarding grapes in the vineyard. The law also contains numerous commands not to deny justice to the poor and to not take advantage of widows or orphans. So clearly, God is concerned with these vulnerable people and justice towards them. The Psalms, the hymn book of the Bible, reflects this aspect of God's character as well. Psalm chapter 9, verse 9 reads, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Later in Psalm 68, which we read this morning and was totally unplanned, God is described as father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. These passages are dear to us when we find ourselves the subject of oppression, when we feel lost and without hope, and they remind us that God has not abandoned us and of his great care for us. But they also serve as important reminders when the shoe is on the other foot, And that when things are going well for us, we have a duty to care for those less fortunate, those who have been trampled by life, and that God desires to raise them up. How about a New Testament example? This one's real real nice and concise. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We could go on. Think of how many times Jesus talks about caring for the poor. Think about Jesus' culminating command in the great parable. If you have done for the least of these, you have done this for me. 
Think about the way the early church cared for one another and made sure that everyone was provided for. Let's read one more verse from Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, where it's speaking of the day of the Lord. Notice the list of sins that he will judge. Malachi 3, 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, and who do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. The first few we're all quite on board with. We get that. Yeah, it makes sense. Those are sins that we recognize. But then in the second half, this incredible justice side of God flares, and we see a side that we don't often interact with. The story of the daughters of Zelophehad is a story about five women who were set to be lost to history. Their family line and name was set to be lost to history, but God cared enough to respond to their cry as he cares about the cries of all who are oppressed and afflicted. The second thing that this story teaches us is that God responds to us. He doesn't ignore us. And I have to be a bit careful here because I don't mean that we are the first to act. God is the first to act in every situation. God calls us to salvation and we respond to him. But God creates opportunity for good works and we choose whether we walk in them. But at the same time that God is the first mover, he also moves again in response to our movement. These five women came to God and God affirmed their plea and changed the law. This is somewhat related to last week and the mystery of God. What is the relationship between our prayers and God's actions? There is a balance to be struck here. On the one hand, God will do what God will do. As we also said last week, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, right? On the other hand, there are many instances in the Bible where it sure seems like God is on one path. And then because a human asks, he changes his mind. Which is very difficult for us to reconcile. How can that possibly be the case? It's not as though we had a better idea than him. And it's certainly not as if we knew better and corrected him. So why does God change his mind? Why, in fact, does God want us to pray? I suspect that at least some of it is that when we pray for something and then God acts, we are far less likely to think it was just a coincidence. Like, it's one thing if someone gets sick and then they get better, right? That happens. People get sick and then they get better. But if someone is sick and you pray for them and then they get better, or especially if they get better really quickly then we tend to give God that credit. And God deserves that credit. God deserves that credit no matter what. The fact that God created our bodies with the ability to fight infection and with the ability to repair damaged tissue, that's incredible. Thank God for every cut that you've ever healed and every cold that you've ever gotten over. More likely, though, is that God simply desires to be in relationship 
with us. Psalm 22 talks about God inhabiting the praises of his people. God says in James 4 that we don't have because we don't ask. Clearly, there is some element where God desires that we ask in order for him to act, at least in some instances. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. God is present. He is waiting. He is acting and calling out to us, desiring relationship but he is also waiting for us to respond. And so, when Jesus is set to ignore the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, she asks, and he delivers her daughter. When God is set to destroy the Israelites for yet another rebellion, Moses asks, and God turns away his wrath. And in Numbers 27, the law stands ready to disinherit the daughters of Zelophehad, But they asked, and God answered. So what are you asking God for? How will your story, in all of your unknowns and obscurity, end up affecting the whole story that God is telling? It's impossible to say, but keep asking, because he does amazing things. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God. You're so good to us. You love us. You call to us. You heal us. You bring us into relationship with yourself. Lord, thank you for this story today. It's an obscure one, Lord. It's one that we don't, we don't really hear about. It's full of weird names and strange customs. But Lord, thank you for the things that it can teach us today. Thank you for the aspects of your character that it shows. Thank you for the reminder of the importance of our care for the poor. Thank you for the importance of our relationship with you and that you care enough to respond when we ask. Lord, if there are any here who need to call out to you, to whom you've been calling and working, and now you're waiting for their heart to respond, Lord, I pray that today would be that day. I pray that today would be the day where we begin a journey with you, where we take a new step of faith and reach out to you for the salvation and the joy and the life that only you can offer. In your name we pray. Amen.